Welcome to God, Yay or Nay. I'm your host, Noor Kidwai. I'm here to find out how we grow, transform, and become our best selves. How we create meaning in our lives. Come join me on my journey. Welcome to another episode of God, Yay or Nay. This is your host, Noor Kidwai. Thanks for tuning in. My guest this week is Kirk Nurmi. Kirk is an author of many books and he's also an attorney. You might recognize him from the famous Jody Arias case that happened years ago. It was a murder trial. He'll talk about it in the podcast and so much more. It's a great listen. Please check me out on Instagram. It's at NoorKidWai. Also, please like and subscribe to the podcast. Give it a good rating. That always helps. And we're part of the Comedy Here Often podcast network on 604 Records, so check them out too. But let's get into this week's episode, everybody. My guest this week, Kirk Nurmi. All right, welcome to another episode of God Yay or Nay. I'm here today with Kirk Nurmi. Kirk, thanks for joining me, man. No, it's a pleasure to, to be with you, and uh, I look forward to having a great conversation with you today. Oh, it's going to be fun. Uh, this You have such an interesting story. Um, I will let you kind of explain it a little bit, but uh, you were like a lead counsel on the Jody Arias case, uh, which was almost a decade ago. And uh, this was such an infamous case around all of North America, a murder trial, and you were the defendant. And uh, the cool thing about it, it sparked such a transformation in your life, a self-transformation, a wellness transformation, spiritual. And so I, I want to get into this. Uh, this it sounds so cool, but I'll let you start like maybe... Uh, kind of tell us the lead up to your case, a little bit of your bio and stuff. Sure. Well, in, uh, without going all the way back to uh, this, this, my, my childhood in the 60s, I'll start out, uh, I graduated law school in, from the University of Wyoming in 2000. And Phoenix, the Phoenix area was booming at the time. Um, my wife and I both had job opportunities out here. And so I took the bar in Arizona and became a public defender, court-appointed counsel. Uh, you know, depending on where you're at, there's different names for it. But I was the guy who represented indigent uh, people in the judicial process. That went on in various capacities for about nine years. And then in around 2008, 2009, I was offered the opportunity to be a part of the capital unit. Uh, there were a lot of death penalty cases being charged. And given the training and everything that's involved, in being a death penalty attorney, um, you have to specialize in it and do cases of that nature exclusively. Oh, and actually it was really 2007, uh, early 2008 that I began to do that. Uh, and in 2009, in that capacity, that's when I was assigned to represent the now infamous uh, Miss Arias. In 2010, um, I had had a couple death penalty trials. Anybody's familiar with the death penalty process knows that the trials last for weeks, months. Uh, shortest one I ever had was four months. Mm -hmm. So, and, and obviously it's a very stressful because someone's life on the line. A lot of people have different opinions on the death penalty. I do not believe in the death penalty. And so, uh, you know, that got me in that mind frame and, and that's why I took the job. But the realities of it, um, were that I was getting older and, and I didn't want to do that kind of work anymore. I wanted a more relaxed lifestyle. I'd kind of done my time in the death penalty arena. And that's when I had Miss Arias's case and I attempted to withdraw from the case 
judge would let me withdraw from the case. So, uh, which is really customary in, in, a, in a surprising maneuver. And so ultimately on January 2nd, 2013, I found myself uh, walking to the courthouse, seeing portable studios outside the courthouse and walking into a media circus and having a small sense, but not a true sense of the infamy that was about to infuse itself into my life. Yeah, and I, I couldn't even imagine that because uh, like, I guess none of your cases before even came close to the amount of uh, media attention that this got, right? No, and I don't think really many cases do, you know. Uh, I, I'd had some cases where in the local news, that sort of thing, but this was worldwide. This was streamed worldwide. It was one of the first in the social media era. There was the Casey Anthony case that got a lot of attention, you know. But I think in this, by the time we got to 2013, streaming was more popular. Everybody could watch their case from their cell phones, you know, their computers at work, all that kind of thing. So it really became uh, a global event. And I know this because I would receive correspondence, mostly derogatory correspondence um, from all over, all over the world. Uh, Over the course of the, the trial lasted, the first trial lasted about five months. So yeah, uh, it was, um, it was a real, it, it really turned into a media circus, no doubt about it. Oh my God. No, I, I honestly, I couldn't imagine it. And for my audience who might not be familiar with the case, can you maybe give like a quick uh, kind of idea or breakdown of what it was? Sure. Uh, she was about 30 years old. She was in a relationship with a man by the name of Travis Alexander. Uh, the two of them had a on again, off again, kind of toxic bond type of relationship. Um, she had came, come she had moved to California, but then she came out to visit him uh, in early June of 2008. Um, there are what made it kind of a media sensation was there was a lot of salacious aspects to the case. They were kind of have a secretive sexual relationship. And as a matter of fact, uh, on the day she killed him in a very brutal fashion, she they had had sex uh, a couple hours earlier. So it was kind of a made-for-TV thing. She had given some interviews before trial. There'd been some documentaries on it. So um, it, it was really just a made-for-TV event and caught a lot of uh, people's attention. Yeah, no kidding. And, like, uh, I guess, yeah, even that whole, like, it has, like, sex. It has, like, blood and violence. Yeah, like, all of right. that. It's, like you said, made-for-TV right there, right? <laughs> yeah, so let's like talk about like your like actual mental health during this whole trial. Cause I, I, Oh my God. Like, so what's the stress of going through any of these death penalty trials? And then how does this amplify when you just have the world going on you and like following every move of you? Yeah. I mean, the death penalty obviously does put pressure on you because whether regardless of the, who the defendant is, it's always somebody's brother, somebody's son or daughter, right? It's always somebody's relative, somebody someone cares about. And so there's obviously a lot of pressure in that regard. But you add to this everything that was involved. I mean, as the trial grew in popularity, infamy, whatever word you want to use, I mean, people were lining outside the courthouse at four in the morning trying to get in. People were coming from Australia to watch the trial. People were trying to sell tickets. People were fighting in the hallways. And myself and the defense team got a lot of threats along the way, a lot of death threats, a lot of credible death threats. We would have, 
we would have to park in a separate area. We'd have to walk into the courthouse in a different way. They would check our car for bombs. All kinds of things were going on. And there was obviously at the time, I looked a lot different than I do now. I was a heavier guy, had a shaved head. So it was pretty recognizable on TV as well. I mean, it was all over the local news. I couldn't turn on the TV in the morning and watch the news after I worked out without seeing a segment on the trial. There was uh, segments on on the, you know, on uh, what was headline news at the time that would replay the trial, things like that. Nancy Grace covered the trial. So, yeah, I mean, it was just all encompassing. And it was kind of a really to get to the heart of your question, kind of a bunker mentality because you you had a job to do and a commitment to our constitution the united states constitution to give this person representation even whether you believe in them or not or you want to be there or don't most people thought i wanted to be there most people thought i believed her story she made allegations that her uh, boyfriend her victim uh, was an abusive pedophile which i didn't believe, but I had an ethical obligation to share with the world, right? So this brought up all these emotions in people. And again, it was just kind of a bunker mentality. It was kind of a get through it kind of thing. And then um, as fate would have it, you know, we got towards uh, Memorial Day weekend of 2013. The trial was winding down and I thought I was going to be released uh, from handcuffs of the trial. And uh, such was not the case because the jury hung as it related to sentencing. So uh, I wound up being Ms. Arias' attorney all the way till April of 2015. And I couldn't imagine that too, when you at the beginning, you wanted to get out of this goddamn trial and then this whole, right. oh my God. So like this whole bunker mentality of like you actually, uh, during this trial, I guess you kind of like left all your connections with like kind of relatives, friends and family. Are you kind of just like isolating yourself now? Yeah, pretty much. I mean, there wasn't a time for a lot. I mean, that's one of the reasons I wanted to get out of death penalty work in the beginning, because you, when you're in trial, you're working 12, 14 hours a day. You don't have much of a time for a life. You're put, you know, I, I had a great understanding wife, but, um, you know, you just don't want to live like that all the time. And then the heightened scrutiny of the trial and everything. I mean, it was, like I say, a bunker mentality at my house. I had to ask for extra police protection at times. Oh, my wife uh, my wife quit her job because people were finding out where family members worked, that sort of thing. And her name would have been up on a on a website with the last name like Nermi. It's, it's, it's not Smith, right? It's a little less common than... True. So, um, yeah, it just became a bunker mentality to get through it. It's just... Like a lot of things, you know, it's like if you got to you got to take a shot or something you don't want to or you got to go to the dentist, you just kind of bear down. But it was kind of a, a bearing down for a long time, over two years, ultimately, because I didn't couldn't, wrap up to I couldn't imagine that. And uh, are you saying like um, as a defendant, like so are people trying to like paint you as like somebody who's like. Like, I know you're defending the murderer technically, but you know what I'm saying? Like, are they trying to paint you as a bad guy as like part of this, like, uh, like, you know, like almost like a part of the crime as well? I think so. I mean, I think I was a target uh, and I wasn't the defendant. I'm going to correct you. I wasn't. That was Jody. I was the defense attorney. Oh, yeah. Um, my there's bad, my there's bad. a big difference. <laughs> and and that's, that's a big point of contention, right? Because people don't understand the lines of what a, an attorney's role is, right? They believe that an attorney's there because they believe their client's story, that, that sort of thing. Or maybe I was there for fame or whatever. And that it was really my idea to, to say all these 
um, horrible things about her victim. And so, you know, you have that line blurs for people, right? It's that, it's that mentality. Like, you know, I always, I, I often say that I was kind of treated like a character in a reality show, right? They had this, they put the black hat of villain on me, right? I was the Darth Vader. I was the bad guy, even though they really didn't know how I felt about it. That character image they had of me, a, a kind of akin to, I've read marketing books talk about, uh, celebrity marketing, right? You see some model drinking a, a Coke or something, and you think that that model likes Coke. She could be spitting it out. She could, who knows what, but she's not, you know, she's endorsing it. It doesn't mean that she or he or she necessarily likes the product that they're endorsing. And it's the same kind of deal, but those lines blur. And a lot of that wrath that I talked about earlier was based on the misunderstanding that that, that I was somewhat in on this and in on the things that she was saying oh man yeah and uh and it was at a time it was at a time that i couldn't say otherwise right i couldn't say otherwise because you know there's privilege you can't just go out you know a defense attorney can't stand up and say you know by the way i don't believe my client but here's here's what she's gonna say it doesn't work that way right you have to (laughs) tell the client's story right you have to give them effective assistance to counsel because Every death penalty case, if a person sentenced to death, automatically goes to the U.S. Supreme Court for review. So you want to make sure as a defense attorney that your obligation to the court is that you provide that person with the best counsel possible so that the trial is not done over. Yeah. So uh, I don't know. Like, I know you're a cancer survivor and like I know you got cancer uh, after this uh, trial. Like, do you think there was a connection between the trial and uh, your cancer? Oh, definitely. I knew it uh, in my heart right away. Um, the trial ended in my involvement in the sentencing and everything, I should say, ended in April of 2015. It was in uh, September of 2015 that I noticed an inflammation in my lymph node. Um, and that was the only sign I had. I felt otherwise healthy. Um, and ultimately, after having that uh, lymph node extracted, uh, that's when I learned I had stage three, ultimately after the scans as well, stage three non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. And that gave me with the actuary of charts that got it, you know, down to a science as it were, um, gave me about a 70% chance to live um, and a 30% chance that, that, that I would not defeat my cancer. So that's what I was facing uh, in my late 40s after kind of being beaten down on the worldwide stage. Man, I couldn't uh, imagine that. And uh, so how many, like, you probably went through quite a bit of chemotherapy and everything to get over it? Yeah, you know, I had the diagnosis was for six rounds of chemotherapy. And um, our top therapy, I had to have a power port put in, all those sort of things. And I remember one day in the fall, it starts to cool down in, in Phoenix in the fall, at least to the point where you can go for a run in the morning. And I remember going for a run and wondering, I actually questioned whether I wanted to go into chemotherapy. I wondered because of everything that I was going through and everything. I, you know, I, I, my taste for the practice of law had been soured by this experience. Um, you know, there was a lot of trauma associated with the experience. So I really went to a dark place and said, "Do I want to take chemotherapy? Is the life that I'm wor- that I'm saving worth living?" right? Because I didn't want to keep doing what I was doing. Mm. So there was serious contemplation on my part, 
whether or not I wanted to go into chemotherapy. Now, it wasn't that I wanted to make my wife a widow and everything like that, but I felt like I needed to have reasons on my own to go into that chair, reasons that I wanted to live. And, and so at that point in time, when I made the choice to go into chemotherapy, I promised myself that I would not live my remaining years the way I had the prior years. And that was really the beginning of my shift and, and my transformation to a new life. Oh, okay. That's, uh, yeah, that's pretty deep. So like, uh, what, what were those answers that you kind of found when like to make you go like, all right, my life is worth saving. It's, I should do the chemotherapy. Like what was the soul searching you did? Well, it was that soul searching of reasons why I wanted to live. Right. And beyond again, beyond, you know, not making my wife order. Nobody wants to die. It's an uncomfortable thought, that sort of thing. So I started thinking about other things that I could do. And I felt like I didn't really have a specific direction, but I felt like that if I went through this, I mean, I think source um, was telling me to, to keep going and fight this because there would be a mission down the road and that I needed to just keep going through that. Right. So that's when I made the decision to go through chemotherapy and, that kind of started me on um, an evolution, a, a spiritual evolution, if you will, because at that point in time, I wouldn't call myself at all, at all spiritual. I read some Deepak Chopra, but, um, you know, years prior, but that was about the extent of it. So um, it really began kind of a, an evolutionary process for me once, once I survived the cancer. Okay. And uh, what kind of like uh, spirituality did like it help you? Because I know you were talking about uh, having some mentors and stuff like that. So like, uh, what was this kind of process of becoming more spiritual? Like? Yeah, well, uh, you know, I had a great, uh, you, you know, one of the there's one of the great things about YouTube is there's good quality stuff on there, right? I mean, oh, yeah. you know, there's a lot of bad stuff, but there's a lot of good stuff. And as fate would have it, when I started going through chemotherapy, I came across a man by the name of Kyle Cease, and I don't know if you're familiar with Kyle Cease or not. He was a uh, actor. He was in some uh, teen movies uh, back in the '80s, and a uh, stand-up comic. And he just kind of, and he was, you know, he was Amy Schumer was his opening act. He was kind of on that kind of track, right? Oh, okay. And he he kind of had a breakdown. And using his words, I didn't know him at this time, but he kind of had a breakdown and um, really started to question what he wanted to do with his life. Did he want to keep doing this? And uh, he made the decision that he wanted to start down a more spiritual path himself and started a, a company called Evolving Out Loud. And so I started watching some of his videos, some of his teachings and connecting to uh, a greater meaning with his with his guidance just just through video uh, initially and so that got me to kind of that place and I was reading a lot of um, Wayne Dyer someone probably uh, that everybody's everybody's yeah, yeah. heard of right and so I started reading a lot of those books and um, started feeling like I had a new calling towards um, to, towards helping others and because I saw a lot of misery in, in the legal profession in my uh, original intent was to um, start coaching lawyers because I saw so much misery, so much substance abuse, uh, things of that nature in the legal profession that my desire was to help. But but that never never came to pass. There was a there was even maybe more to uh, or 
or a different direction, I should say. And um, when I was exploring that direction, I also um, came in contact with a great mentor, a, a man by the name of Sean Stevenson. I don't know if you're aware of Dr. Sean Stevenson or not, but um, oh. your audience, you and your audience should look him up. He was born with uh, brittle bone disease. Um, so he was three foot tall and in a wheelchair. He was, no, he called himself the three foot giant. And, you know, he endured a childhood of, you know, breaking his arms and not being able to move from the position he break, broke his arms for days on end. Um, people told his mother that he wasn't going to live uh, too long, that sort of thing. And um, he became a, a professional speaker, a TEDx speaker. Uh, he owned a speaking company and he, he uh, got a PhD in hypnotherapy and just did a lot of great things in the world. It was a lot of powerful force to a lot of people. He was uh, he was an intern in the Clinton White House. He he worked with Tony Robbins. He, so he was really a powerful force in the um, in the transformation business, I guess you might say. And what was really great about that is I had a chance uh, on my journey uh, to work with him, both as a speaker performer and uh, just overall transformation. And he was, a, he was a great guiding force in my life as well. Mm, and like, uh, what's his kind of philosophy, a lot of like kind of using your mind like uh, to overpower kind of stuff? Like, I guess that hypnotherapy a little bit? No, he wasn't really uh, a Tony Robbins type of, you know, I consider Tony Robbins uh, kind of like a Kool-Aid man of, of, uh, of motivate, you know, Tony Robbins wants to bust through the walls and that sort of thing. <laughs> and Sean was more of a, of a connection of a, um, one of his favorite expressions was things don't happen to me. They happen for me. And it was, it was just, it was a great mindset. He was a great, communicator obviously with his speaking business but he was so great with mindset and that connective mindset i think ultimately what he brought brought me towards you know that the idea that we're all connected and that the problems you know like for example earlier um and and i do a little bit of public speaking as well still and, and as long with along with my one-man show but one of the things that, um, you know, he helped me understand is like, for example, this Aries trial, the cancer, everything else, it didn't happen to me. It happened for me. Mm-hmm. And, and that, that kind of mindset can be a big, can be a big shift, right? Because so many times we don't realize that. And so many times we don't realize how connected we are because, you know, I just at the beginning of this talked about how you know, I was doing a job I didn't want to do and how that caused health problems and everything. And how, unfortunately, though, I bet you a lot of your listeners can relate to having a job that they don't want to work. I bet you that they can relate to having a job that kind of kills their creativity and kind of creates a bit of a bunker mentality in their, at least in their mind, right? And I also bet they can relate to having a job that's so stressful that there's health problems that arise from that, right? Mm-hmm. So he helped kind of make me see some of those connections that, you know, we're all part of the same thing. We're all going through the same struggles. There may be different labels we use. There may be different images we project, but we're all going through a lot of the same thing. 
and both as an understanding of that and, and as a way of communicating with others in a more empathetic manner. Mm-hmm. And uh, honestly, I love that uh, message so much uh, and like how that mindset message of the way you look at something and like, hey, it's happening not to you, but for you. That is so, so powerful. And uh, yeah, like, and go ahead. Yeah, I got it. I got to share with you because, you know, some people can say a lot of things and um, and not mean them. But Sean passed away um, almost two years ago now, and he was in a wheelchair and uh, he was in his favorite local park in the back of the wheelchair gave away. He fell out of the wheelchair and cracked the skull. And yeah, and so his wife and a and a great friend of his uh, took him to the hospital. And one of the things he said, which I assume was some of the last things he said uh, on this earth before he went in for surgery, was that this didn't happen to me; it happened for me. Hmm. Man, oh man, how powerful is that? Uh, and yeah. Like- yeah, you can see like a guy who's been through so much trials and like made it far in his life. Like, yeah, yeah. you can see he lived by that, those words. And I remember that like, you were talking about having like a job that like you feel trapped in or you feel like um, like it's not fulfilling and like kill like it's you feel like that. I know all of us have had that. And I remember like when I first started doing comedy, I wasn't making money doing comedy. So I was like always doing landscaping in the summer and I fucking hated yeah. landscaping so much. <laughs> but like, uh, I remember there was a point where I did have to switch that mindset because like it, it, it wasn't no more like, you can't be like, why aren't I making money in comedy? And like, why do I have to keep working these shitty jobs? Like you can't keep thinking like that or you're just going to get more miserable and miserable. But I do remember thinking like uh, I remember once like going like you know what like I got to look at this job as an opportunity like not only to make money so I can tour in the winter but uh, also as an opportunity to practice my spirituality and to practice hard work and like just that humility in it and I remember when I started looking at my job like that um, my days became way easier I became like, uh, I remember practicing like kind of like a meditation or presence while I'm just doing my work, like just try to be completely focused and paying attention to your work. And uh, yeah, and just like taking like, uh, being a little bit more humble and like being like, hey, um, this is hard work and hard work's good for you. And once I started making money in my comedy career that those like all of those focus and hard work kind of transferred to that. So it, it is very powerful that whole I love that so much, like that mindset of just like how to look at this situation in a different way and give it a completely different meaning, right? Right. And I would say, I would submit that that's probably why your comedy started taking off because you weren't feeling in that trap mentality, right? Because, you know, and I always use the the little hook, have to versus get to. Like so many of us say we have to get to work. We have to go to work. I want to do, it's usually prefaced by something fun we're going to do, right? Oh yeah, I want to go to the game with you, but I have to wake up and go to work in the morning or I have to work or whatever. Whatever fun thing it is, but I have to What if we switch that to get to? And that's kind of what I think you did with your job. You're like, oh, I have to do this landscaping job. It sucks. And then you start to realize, well, I get to do this landscaping job. And then I get to eat and survive. And then I get to have gas money to drive to the comedy club to do the set, right? And then when you start doing that, 
you start realizing that it's a privilege to be on that stage. And I think that changes your vibration. That raises you up. You're not like, oh, man, I had to work all day and then I got to try to and these people aren't going to laugh or what if these people don't laugh. Right. And instead you're going, I got to go to work. Now I got to get up and I get to do this set. And this is what I really love. And the job I have enables me to do it. And I think people respond to that vibration. People are drawn, whether they know it or not, people are drawn to that vibration. And I think that's why you're starting to see some of the success that you are. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and I like how you said that vibration, because I know some people don't like the term vibration, they think it's a little too like, spiritual or out there. But like, I I do kind of agree with it in the sense that like, your whole personality changes when you start you change your mindset, because like, you're right, when I was um, looking at this, uh, looking at my job as like something that I had, like it's happening to me, and like, I have to do I'm in a completely like lower mood. Like I feel like shit. I, uh, I'm grumpier. My mind, like all the thoughts that are going through my mind are more negative and more self-defeating. But like, once I change that up and like you say, I get to, I get to do this and I get to get all the privileges that come with us. Now I'm like, I'm going into a more grateful mindset and like, uh, something that I've learned uh, before in my life and many times before how like powerful gratefulness is. And like to say, like it raises your vibration. Hell yeah. I really do think that's a good way to say it. Even if vibration isn't the word you want to say, but like whatever it is, it makes you more attractive to people and it attracts better things into your life. It really does. Right. I mean, those people that don't believe in vibration should think about what it's like when they see a person who's angry and grumpy versus a person who's happy and smiling, they're immediately drawn to that person because of that vibration, right? It's not just a visual. It can be drawn to that vibration. And so I think it's just such an important, powerful tool. I'm not a big law of attraction guy, but I also think it's just just a happier way to live. I mean, I've gotten to the point now, um, I've actually set a vibrational tone for myself in the morning before I get out of bed. So I might say that I want to be, uh, have a fun day today. I want to connect into the power that I have to source. I might want to make sure that I'm setting a vibration of connection. And I can see that that affects my mood and the mood around me based on whatever I have going that day. And I just set that vibrational intention and then I get on with my day. Mm-hmm. I, yeah, no, I love that. So um, I want to know then, like after your cancer and like all these spiritual changes and the mindset changes started coming up, you have these like mentors like uh, Sean and Kyle that uh, really helped you. Um, So how did that change like what you were like? Because I know you started writing books and stuff. So I'm just kind of like seeing like that. How did it change where you're this like, this is my new life. I want to do something different. Like uh, how did that all come come about? Well, you know, ultimately it it was a, it was a shift in my beacon, right? A lot of people want success, those tangible measures of success, right? We we are taught in the United States and maybe a lot of other countries that, you know, that this happiness is a byproduct of success, right? If we have the car, the the job, all that sort of thing, and money in our bank account, that we're going to be happy as a default measure, right? we think happiness is going to be a default measure of that, right? And oftentimes it's not. We see successful people that are tangibly successful and they're not happy. What if we switch that around and made happiness our beacon? 
what if we just made that simple switch? And that's the switch I started to, to make when I got through some of my mentorship and really started finding my own voice in a new way, right? And I, and Sean was instrumental in uh, me helping or just at least inspiring the idea of defend your greatness, that uh, inherent greatness in us that allows us to flourish those unique traits we bring to the world. And so I'm living with that without expectation, without, um, you know, this idea of success or failure. If I enjoy each day that I'm living and I put my pillow at night and I'm happy with it, whether I've, you know, done anything that, that brings me money or tangible measure of success, I'm happy. And that might not happen 100% of the days. But if that happens 95% of the days, I say that adds up to a pretty good life lived, right? And we put so much pressure on ourselves over things that we'll forget about in five years. Like one of the things I would challenge you to do or and your listeners to do is think about the problems you had five years ago and odds what you consider to be a problem five years ago. I would bet you odds are good that you don't even remember most of them. Yeah. They might have been just the things that kept you up at night five years ago, but they don't now. And you don't even like, you know, the relationship, the girl that stood you up, the, the door ding in your car, whatever it is. You don't even you don't own that car anymore. You don't even care. Right. The time you you didn't do well on a set, you know, four years ago or whatever. You're not thinking of that now. It might have kept you up at night for a week yeah. four years ago. But it doesn't matter now. And so it just becomes that idea of those problems are so temporary. And if you're, you know, if you're not going to worry about something on your deathbed, which is a moment in your life, why would you worry about it now, which is also a moment in your life? Why give it that value? Mm. There's no value in, there's no value in worry. And so I just go about, I've written eight books now. Uh, I, I perform a one man show that I do at, at comedy clubs. And, you know, I'm just, I do legal commentary. There's no definition. It's just what speaks to me. Like, you know, seeing you, uh, you know, seeing you on Podmatch and said, this is a guy that I'd like to talk to and hearing you. And it, that's it. There doesn't have to be any more to it than that because we're having fun. In your one man show, you do a little bit of uh, comedy as well. I do. I uh, The one man show is called Overcoming Jody Arias. And uh, which is really, it's kind of, you know, a one man show that's not, it's not traditional comedy, right? It's, um, you know, you go to a comedy club, you hear a lot of uh, uh, off-color jokes, if you will. I try to do a little something different uh, with my act. I try to think about the things that I've overcome and to try to illustrate to people that they can overcome the things in their life, too. But I use comedic, I, it's a, I call that the subtitle is a comedic examination of life's trials. Mm. And so it's not the traditional stand-up, but it's that kind of, you know, like, I, you know, Mike Tyson did a one-man show. I don't know if you've ever seen that or not, that Spike oh. Lee produced. And he's just up on stage telling stories of his life, and there's those comedic elements to it, those funny moments, right? And and obviously, as, as a comic, you know that, you know, uh, laughter is is makes a connection with you. make a connection with the crowd when you make them laugh. There's that emotional connection. But the great part about the comedy is I think it allows me access to a deeper a part of a person's emotions. 
Oh, 100% it does. <laughs> That's actually been, like, one of the best things, uh, yeah. just doing comedy uh, in general, is, like, I, I always remember, like, hey, you can actually, like, introduce different ideas to people, and if you make them laugh, they they open up quite a bit, and they actually will, uh, they'll actually take it in, <laughs> which is nice. Yeah. You're right. And that's great. And there's, you know, there's a way to do like a lot of comics, you'll see acts and you go, okay, that guy was funny, but he's making a lot of dick jokes or a lot of fart jokes and you forget him right away. I want my audience to leave with the, and there's nothing wrong with that, but I want the audience to leave my shows because it's, it's 90 minutes of me on stage. I want them to leave with things to think about when they come up in their life and they think about the challenges and obstacles and not just as a comparison to me, but using some of the tools and and there can be humor in that as well, you know. Mm-hmm. I love that. Uh, no, I really do. Uh, so I do want to like uh, a little bit talk a little bit about like your self care routines now, like and how that's changed because I, and like I know you say you would uh, try to influence other lawyers and stuff to do these kind of things. Yeah. Well because uh, the mental health issues probably in the law uh, it must be pretty rough. So uh, yeah, what what kind of like uh, exercises or stuff like that do you do? Oh, I got a lot of different um, self-care routines. I think um, some of them are going to sound non-traditional as far as self-care goes. But one of the things that I do is um, we talk about gratitude. Uh, Apart from the vibration, I set my vibration in the morning. I consider that to be Mm self-care. And I have what I call a gratitude. We all text people every day, right? So one of the things I do is I have someone set up. And we text each other three things that we're grateful for each day. Usually from the prior, we wake up in the morning and we text each other. And it's this great deal. You know, some people like journal and different things like that. They might forget. I've got, there's some accountability in there because when she sends me a text message and I go, oh yeah, I didn't send the gratitude email or text to her. Then I go in and put three things that I'm grateful for. And it just, it's just built every day. And it starts that day with this, you've got the vibration and you've got the gratitude, right? And so to me, that's a great start, right? In, in terms of self-care. The other thing I do, I've, I've, I've been blessed uh, here recently, starting in January, I was uh, selected to be uh, part of a body transformation show on Amazon Prime called Radical Body Transformation. Um, Back when I started, I probably weighed about 30 pounds more than I do now. Um, I've gone up and down with my weight. Unfortunately, chemotherapy and the drugs I took put a lot of of weight on my body. So um, this is a chance for me to go from a chubby guy to a really fit guy. So I spend, uh, I've got a trainer. She gives me, uh, you know, the workout program, the nutrition with the macros. It's been really easy to follow. And so there's that. A connection there that I get to myself but really taking care of my body and one of the things I talk about in defend your greatness is I think when we take care of our body we're showing the universe that we're willing to show up for our mission right that we have this greatness inside of us and that the source has put us here for a particular reason to bring those unique characteristics into the world right and I think when we show up and start taking care of our body we're showing the universe that that's what we want to do. And when we when we drink too much, we smoke too much, whatever it is, then we're kind of selling the universe, we're checking out that we're not interested and those things don't come our way. So I really feel blessed to have this opportunity and, and hopefully inspire others because I always say, you know, um, 
I'll be, I might be taking my shirt off on Amazon Prime, uh, you know, come January of next year. And that's uh, that's reason that's motivation enough. Right. And hope that, that I inspire some other people. So um, and then the last bit of self-care, I think that I do is um, I really work on negating worry. And because so many of us worry, and that is such a negative emotion, we don't want to, right? We don't, nobody wants to worry. Our mind seems to take over. You know, if you're, you're watching a game or, or maybe as a performer, you know, I'm real good at this too, right? You, 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 you perform, like even when I go on court TV, I perform and I think, oh, did I suck? How did I do? And maybe you beat yourself up. Oh, maybe this joke could have been better, whatever it is, right? And I start to think about worry. And how negative that is. So I've come up with a couple of tools that I use in my mind to, to curtail worry. And I think that's a great act of self-care and I'll, I'll, I'll share them with you. Please the do. first is I, ch- I check the odds. So by that, I mean, look, 99% and probably higher of things you worry about never come to pass, right? Mm. I mean, I don't know, maybe you're, maybe, Norm, maybe you're a better warrior than I am, but like, I bet you I'm not even one out of a thousand, right? I mean, all these things that you worry about, it's going to happen. Pretty much none of them come true, right? So the logic of that to me kind of um, attacks, because it's the mind that worries, you attack the mind on its own pl- battlefield, which is logic, right? Mm-hmm. So logically, you've already weakened the worry if you say it's not going to happen, Right. And then even those tangible worries, you say, yeah, Kirk, well, you know, I still got to worry about, I, I'm a good worrier. I, I bat two out of a thousand and all my worries are tangible. And I, then I asked myself, and I would suggest your listeners try the same, is I asked myself, um, will the worrying help? Like, let's say your kid wanted or a friend wanted to, you to go rollerblading. And you were worried about uh, falling down and breaking your arm. Well, have you, has anybody out there, and if, if somebody has is listening, please contact us and, and let us know. But has that prevented you from falling over? Has that like bound, created a force field around your arm where if you fall over, you it doesn't break, right? No, of course not, right? Mm-hmm. That doesn't happen. And then the other question is, uh, when it relates to worry, um, if you fall down and break your arm, if you ever sit there and go, Oh man, I'm glad I worried about that in advance because it's going to heal faster. It's going to hurt. It's going to hurt less. That sort of thing. It's going to, you know, whatever it is, whatever the situation is, no. So there's no worth in worry. And when you start topping worrying down, I think you that is a great act of self care because then you can think about happier things. You could be more present with your family, be more present with your friends. Your mind's not wandering to a worry that's not going to happen. And what else? You can be more creative. You can be more connected to those ideas that Source wants you to project into the world as opposed to those ego-based worries that or originate in the mind. I love that. And uh, yeah, you're, you're so right. Uh, one of my favorite quotes I remember hearing is like, worry is the wrong use of your imagination. And uh, I, I love that. I, I do think that's right. Like how you were saying, like you, you can constantly be worrying and like, like, I think even now we notice like how worry like actually like increases the stress in your body. And like, as you are now well aware of like stress can lead to like different diseases and stuff too. So like becoming a constant worrier can be like 
it can be really bad for you. And I, I well, even, even yeah, you're right. Constant can be, but even even the little worries that we have every day can be dehabilitating to the greatness inside of us. And I think we live happiest when we live in our greatness. Mm-hmm. And you're, and you're right. And like, uh, and like the one thing I really liked uh, how you said it is like worry is pretty much like a constant, uh, your mind constantly searching for things to worry about and it, it prevents you from being present. So when you do deal with your worries and you learn to like, uh, you learn to like not pay attention to them and let them like slowly disappear, uh, that actually allows you to become more present in your life. And uh, I know I used to do that with my comedy as well. Like when I first started going up there, you would always have so many worries about like, oh, how is this going to go? Like, oh, am I going to say this joke right? Or blah, blah, blah. But like once I learned to just like shut those worries off and like, uh, and like, it's not, you don't shut them off, but like if you slowly learn to like uh, disassociate with them and then they slowly go away and stop appearing. But once, once you do that, like you become more present, you can be, be there for what you want, what you're doing. And like, for me, it was comedy. And like, without that worry, I was able to just go on stage and be present. And that allowed me to become a better comedian. And like how you said, like be present with your like friends and family more because you're not worrying and not constantly in your head, because that's what worry is. You're inside your head, you're in your thoughts or in your anxieties. And that's, like that's just unhealthy and and you're lo- and you're lowering your vibration going back to what we said earlier you're lowering your vibration into um things that again that egoic mindset where the you know we, ha- we all have that ego that protective thing that biologically was there to keep us part of the tribe and, and keep us safe from wild animals and now it's just keeps us away from succeeding and living our happiest life. And, and what you're saying is it's just proof positive of that in terms of your, in terms of your comedy, because, you know, the other thing I would say about that is what value is there in worry, right? To those performers and those people out there, like, you know, worrying about a set isn't going to make you better. Like, Oh crap. I hope I don't bomb. It's not going to make you better. It's going to make you worse. Right. So there's no value in it. So just move forward dismiss them as best you can and stand in your greatness. I would say that, you know, now your crowds are a reflection of the, when you get on stage, you're standing in your greatness. You're doing what you are supposed to be doing, what vibes with you, what makes your heart sing, you know, that, that old Wayne Dyer thing, you're, you're singing the song that's inside you when you're standing up on stage. I can just see, you know, obviously people can't see you, uh, but I can just see you light up and, and smile when you think about those moments. And that that shows me just what I'm saying is absolutely real spot on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, man. No, it, it, it's honestly, uh, that's exactly it. And uh, I love that uh, your heart singing. That's a Wayne Dyer quote. <laughs> yeah, he says, don't uh, don't die with your music left inside you. Um, and, you know, uh so we're all here to sing our song. And that's one of the things that can be suppressed when we when we live in the land of ego or practicality or those kind of things, right? Like, you know, we don't allow ourselves and maybe in us a lot of condition as children just to, to be more practical, to go pursue a normal job, right? You know, a, a comedian, I'm sure, I don't know how your parents reacted to you just saying you wanted to be a comedian, right? But Or an actor, most people probably don't get 
that kind of support because they say, oh, no, you know, go, to, go be a doctor, go be a lawyer, go be something stable so you can have a family. And again, like we said earlier, the happiness is supposed to be the byproduct. But we're really doing it the opposite way. What makes your heart sing is what's going to make you happy and those other um, traditional measures of success will follow. Yeah. No, and that's uh, that's true. And like, yeah, what makes your heart sing? And like, so uh, with you, like when you got into writing these books, like, didn't you write your first couple books, like while you were doing chemotherapy as well? Sure. Uh, my first book was actually my weight loss book that I wrote um, because there was a lot of talk on headline news and elsewhere, even the Dr. Drew show about my weight loss. So I wanted to impose truth upon that exactly how I did it. Um, there's a lot of speculation. I got surgery and hair plugs because I used to shave my head and that sort of silly stuff. So um, I wanted to impose some truth upon that. And then when it came to Trapped with Miss Arias, that became a real important book for me to write because of that 70% chance that I was going to live. I, As a cancer patient, I guess at that time, I was focusing more on that 30% chance that I wasn't going to make it and wanted to make sure that I imposed truth upon our lives. Um, in a book, in a way that would obviously survive me if I was going to leave this planet. So um, that's when I published Chap with Miserys, the uh, first part. And that ultimately led to um, my disbarment. The bar took issue with that. I believe I took uh, my response was an ethical one to her worldwide interview in which she, she lied about me. But um, I really, consistent with the promise I made to myself that we talked about earlier, um, really knew that I needed to make a whole new life and that hanging on to the past would prevent me from building that whole new life it would be a crutch. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And do you think that, like uh, that, like writing that book, do you think, because do you think that helped with your health, with your healing? I think so. I think, you know, as a comic and a performer yourself, you might know it's, it can be cathartic to get some of these things out. Oh, right. Huge. You know, and, and any kind of artist in, in whatever venue, I think that's true. Um, and so I think it's great. It was a, a cathartic deal for me to be able to write that book and, and do the interviews and kind of get people to see me in, in a different light. And same for the show, right? When I go on stage for the show, I get a chance to tell my story and, and move beyond the character that people saw on TV, right? So, because that's, you know, uh, a lot of what happens, people have this image of you uh, when you're on TV, when you gain this infamy that um, isn't always true, right? So, um, you know, that that's kind of a great cathartic uh, deal as well. And I suppose, you know, everything I do to some degree is cathartic. When I go on court TV to talk about another case, people get to see me in a different light and, and that's cathartic as well. And and now I've expanded into doing some um, acting. I'm going to be doing some acting coming up. And I think that's going to be cathartic as well to kind of put some of those uh, talents out there and, and, and see myself in a new light. And, um, what, like I say, be guided by that beacon of fun and, and you know, I'm always going to be looking for, for a good good time in terms of, instead of a, a career that I have to label or a, or an identity that I have to fulfill. You know, there's there's uh, the great poet Rumi says that we um, we tend to associate ourselves with time, telling us that we're that our identities are fitting ourselves. And I'm paraphrasing, but you know, we tend to flock of birds of a feather kind of thing, and we tell, tend to tell each other how great we are, how happy we are, what have you instead of really, and bolstering it, instead of really opening up and dealing with our problems.
Oh, I love that. No, it's so true too. Um, when you, those labels are so limiting. And like you said, like how you were talking about Wayne Dyer, you have to let your heart sing and stuff. Like you never know, like, so that heart singing can be in so many different directions. So don't let a label, uh, don't let a label like limit that. Right. Right. You can't say, you know, I, I'm a comic, so I'm not going to do this. or I'm a comic, so I'm not going to do that. You know, you should never do that with whatever, whatever thing you're doing. If it speaks to your heart, do it. Mm-hmm. Why not? Why not? Yeah. All right. I mean, what, I gotta, I, oh, oh, go ahead. Sorry. Oh, go ahead. No, no, you. No, I was going to say, you know, one of the one of the things that I talk about on stage is I talk about living with joyful urgency because we all like to pretend that that you know death isn't coming when we know it is, and why not enjoy the time we're here and why not realize that it's limited and inject some urgency into it and inject some joy into it because that's really to me why we're here. Part of the reason why we're here is to learn and then to have fun. Oh, man, I really like that joyful urgency. And uh, sometimes I've actually had that issue where I'm like, I feel like I'm not living with enough urgency in my life. And I, I, I couldn't imagine how having cancer and going through chemo probably yeah, like that must have like given you a little bit of that joyful urgency or at least urgency at least. Right. Um, how, right, how, would, you, right. how would you think uh, like for somebody who hasn't been through like something like cancer or something like how would you think like they can get some like joyful urgency into their life? Well, I think it's, it's a matter of examination. Like how do you want to live and knowing that you're going to die? I mean, we all have this idea that death, you know, is 20 to 30 years down the road. We don't even want to think about it. Right. But if we really realize that our mortality is, is a reality, then how do we want to live? How does that shape how we want to live and the things we want to do on this planet? I mean, it goes back to kind of what we were saying earlier, too. Do you want to work a job that you hate that stifles your spirit so you can retire for 10 years and watch TV and then die? Uh, Probably not, right? So if there's some urgency into it, bringing joy into your life. Now, obviously, as adults, we have responsibilities. A modicum of practicality has to be honored. But, you know, I am so much happier now when I cut the cord to the legal profession and started following my heart than I would have been had I still been in the legal profession grousing around and, you know, just trying to get through this case or that case so I could go on vacation. It's about thriving instead of just surviving. And so many of us are focused on the survival part. We forget to thrive. And so if we really get in touch with our mortality, which probably most of us don't want to do Mm. something that having a fatal disease puts you in, right? I had a, six months to look at my mortality as I was going through chemotherapy, but I just wanted to live a happier life. And I, I think we all do. We just don't necessarily know how to do it because of the chains and identities that have been put upon us and inside our brain. So um, it's a matter of just deciding that you want to live and that you want to really live, thrive and survive, not just survive, but thrive and be happy. It's just that switch. Yeah, that is, uh, yeah, that's amazing, man. I appreciate you uh, sharing that. Uh, I got one more question for you. So, okay. Uh, name of the podcast. So, uh, Kirk Nermy, God, yay or nay? Does anyone, do, does anyone give a one word answer to this question? <laughs> <laughs> I, I think I've had like you know, one word questions or one word answers to the question. <laughs> 
You know, I think I think it, yeah, it's just it's such a complex question put in like uh, you know four words, three or four words. But um, I I would say yay, but I think my my concept of God and source is a little bit different. You know, it's not the traditional what I would call um, Judge Judy, judgmental figure in the sky that tells you you know how you're supposed to live, and if you don't, you're going to go to a bad place. Um, I consider it more of a source of love and energy put us here and we are all aspects of God. We are all connected to that source. Um, any differences between us are just kind of man-made constructs. And ultimately I believe in that source and that's where we all will return to as well. And, and, and that kind of love is being the guide. Uh, you know, I have a friend of mine who says uh, only love heals. And I think that, that love is our real, real source, our real God, if you will. And, um, to learn to live more and, and, and love more and, and laugh more. So, um, that, so I say, so I guess I'll say yay, but with that big qualifier of, of a different kind of concept of, of God, of that construct of God. All right. That's, uh, that is amazing. Thank you so much. Uh, and uh, so Jody uh, Aries, is she, uh, she's still serving her life sentence then? She is still serving her life sentence. Her appeal was denied. So um, she'll have a post-conviction relief petition coming up, but uh, we'll see where that goes. I don't want to say too much because I'll still be a party to that. But uh, yeah, that's, that's the way it goes. And she, you know, her in my life is one of those aspects that I tried to run away from, realized I could never run fast enough. So now I've just embraced. I always say, you know, if I, if I, invented a cure for cancer and some other fatal diseases. It wouldn't be Kirk Nermy cured cancer. It would be Jody Ayers' former attorney cured cancer. So I've come to accept that in my life and, and, and laugh about it a little bit at times, but to just move forward from that platform because that's the journey that was laid out for me. And that's where I can learn and grow and hopefully help others learn and grow as well. So um, this has been, like I say, so exciting to, uh, be on your podcast and have this kind of conversation because um, I love having these conversations and and uh, I love seeing people light up when they when they reflect on their greatness as you. No, oh, thanks, man, and uh, I love having these conversations too. And I really appreciate you coming on. Um, please let my audience know uh, where they can get a hold of you and uh, anything you want to promote. Uh, please do right now. Sure, they could go to kirknermy.com. Uh, you'll see all my books there. Um, when I get back to doing events, you know, with COVID, I, as you know, as a stand-up, it, it, we weren't getting full houses, that sort of thing. It really wasn't viable. So hopefully I'll start doing some more events. Um, you can follow me on Nermy Unchained uh, and on Instagram. And I, you know, on my website, you can reach out, connect with me through my fan pack. I offer coaching. I offer different things like that. So. Um, there's many ways people can connect with me. Like I say, my my fitness journey is is uh, is on Nermi and Chain. Most of the time, you'll see this chubby old guy working out a little bit, trying to get this bag of bones into shape. So, um, yeah, that's where you can that's where you can find me. All right, awesome. I'll toss that in the podcast description. Uh, thanks so much, uh, Kurt. I know it's been a pleasure. All right, that was another episode. Thanks for listening, everybody. Please like and subscribe to the podcast. Give it a good rating. That always helps. And share it with like-minded people. I really do appreciate that. You can check me out at Newer Kid Y on Instagram. 
or check out my website, NoorKidY.com. You can see my comedy. You can see my comedy dates that are coming up and all that other information. We're part of the comedy here often, Podcast Network on 604 Records. But I'll see you next time on another episode of God Yay or Nay.